From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. Let's have a little romantic American music. Tonight we turn our attention to a more universal subject, one that has intrigued both scientists and scholars throughout the ages, love. I am the human heart. I am a hollow bag the size of your fist, filled with love and others full of hate. A dissertation on love, or boy meets girl. Every week, we bring you the best and most intriguing audio documentaries from around the world. We curate the show, looking for interesting work on the radio, on the web, from our colleagues, and bring it to you in the gallery that is ReSound. Very stimulating, but yes, exceeding yourself. Good show. And of all the stories in the world, this story, the one that we want to tell you today, is the oldest. Since the dawn of man, the primordial ooze, Adam's rib, there is one tale that repeats itself every day on every continent millions of times. Boy meets girl. Or girl meets girl. Or cowboy meets cowboy. Now let us see what happens in the first phase of boy meets girl. Well, doctor, everybody knows that. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. Uh, say, I, um, uh, um, uh, how, how about taking in the show with me tonight? Oh, maybe. I, I'm not sure. I'd have to break a date. I'll break it then, will you? I'll try. I'll pick you up at 5.30, okay? I guess so. See you then. Oh, gee, I, I nearly forgot something. What? What's your name? He did it. So what are you doing sitting home listening to this record when you could be scoring like Frank at your local department store? Wow. You're some operator. But it's what happens between Boy Meets Girl and the end of the story that's the good part. Whether it's a happy ending, for example, silver anniversary, or complete disaster, for example, spouse aside. The obstacles that have to be overcome is where the story reels us in. Our first story from Radio Netherlands involves Jonathan, a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, and Dragana, a nice Serbian girl from Banja Luka. Their obstacle? Well, let's see. Oh, that's right, almost everything. This is called Messicina. It means moonlight. Nema vishe meseta. No more moonlight. <laughs> Are you the sloppy horns? That's very Serbian. This calculated sloppy horns. Nema te, tebe nema mene. No more you. No more me. <laughs> yeah. Sounds very Jewish too. I always thought, which you know resonates with me, being Jewish. It's to be very heartrending. It's important to be heartrending. Everything has to come from the soul, the dusha, the soul. You hear that word over and over again in Serbia, in Bosnia. Dusha, dusha, moja. Okay. Me sechina, me sechina, yoy, 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 Soon sesia, soon sesia, yoy, yoy, yoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to that. Nikoneznam. <laughs> no one knows. Nikoneznam. 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 
<laughs> and then listen to these horns. And the, the Serbs just love this. They love it. And why shouldn't they? You know? It's fantastic. Radio Netherlands presents From Brooklyn to Banja Luka. Okay, for instance, if a guy is really sad and he really wants to show the world that he's alive, gets drunk, and then he goes and finds himself a gypsy bed and pays them, and then he runs through the streets with a bottle of, of rakia, which is this plum brandy, very strong. This is following him. Ah, look at me, I'm alive! I'm insane, I'm alive! Look at me, drink, drink my rakia with me! The whole world hates us! <laughs> but we're wonderful! And they are. And the whole world doesn't hate them, but they have a Jew complex? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You'd think the world was persecuting them for 2,000 years. <laughs> and of course it's not. The world doesn't even know where Serbia is. <laughs> the program is produced by Dira Sujan. My name is Jonathan Gruber. I'm uh, 38 years old. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I've lived in Holland now for 13 years. My name is Dragna Mijatovic. Do I have to tell my age? <laughs> I'm 36 and I'm, uh, I live in Holland since December 92. I met my wife, Dragna Mijatovic, at a party. It was actually oh, exactly 10 years ago. And there was a party filled with happy, great-looking people. And I was feeling really, really good that day. I felt so good. I don't know. I was going on vacation the next day. I uh, had been working out <laughs> for a brief period of my life. I felt really fit. And I was just feeling really great. It was nice to be surrounded by that. And suddenly around uh, 11 o'clock in the evening, Jonathan came in. Uh, that uh, flamboyant, loud American uh, you know, from, I think from the door to the moment he entered till the sofa, wherever he was heading to, he made so much noise <laughs> that I could not resist but, uh, you know, look at him. And, and really, I saw so much energy and life coming out of him. And then the girl who, who was giving the party came up to me and said, uh, you know, I think you have a fan. And then, indeed, I saw this very exotic-looking, clearly Slavic, gorgeous girl sitting there, high cheekbones, long brown hair, beautiful body, obviously looking at me. And he, I mean, he's beautiful. Uh, and, and then suddenly that these blue eyes and the big smile and open face and so much laughter in, in like 10 seconds that I could not believe that people like that existed anymore because I was there still. I mean, I'm very loud and person that loves to laugh and uh, make noise. I'm noisy as well. But at that time, I was very withdrawn and quiet and focused on Bosnia, on what's happening there. And I was, I think, physically here, but spiritually I was there. And when I saw Jonathan, I saw that energy. And I, it, he reminded me of me centuries ago. And I just wanted to connect myself with that energy and, you know, and have a symbiotic relationship. <laughs> it was amazing how he brought a smile on my face. I was dancing and feeling really great with myself, and she comes up to me, and her first words to me were... Okay, John, I'm sorry. You know, you'd be really handsome if you lost you some weight. You should lose some weight. It was really <laughs> embarrassing, actually. But then he, 
I think that was a very nice catching line because he stayed, he tried to have a conversation with me. And uh, we just got to talking, discovered we lived on the same street, the Elandsgracht, which is in the, the center of Amsterdam. And I lived at number uh, 37 and she lived at 73. Is that destiny or what? <laughs> so then he said, oh, I'll walk you home. And we went back to my place and we've sort of been together ever since. Ten years now. Ten years. The first time I met his family was uh, really first time I went to the States. We, Jonathan and I were together for one year and we went there for Christmas. And they were waiting for us uh, at the airport. Um, his father was still alive. He had this tall, beautiful guy with um, with amazing smile. So he's he was the kind of person that immediately warmed you up towards him. And his mom is also, I mean, she's so funny and bigger than life. So it was not really difficult to warm up towards them because they're very loud, very busy, very funny, very entertaining. So even if you yourself didn't have that much to say, they were filling in the gaps. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't really feel uncomfortable or something. They reminded me a bit of my family because of that very easy way of communicating with each other and but uh, there's a little difference. I think my mom would never ask me immediately, oh, how was the flight? What did you eat? You know, was the food good on the plane? <laughs> that's Ellie, that's my mother-in-law. <laughs> I think the funny thing about John's family is that we have to talk about the food a lot. And I'm not that into the food. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting that I'm like, okay, we ate something. I mean, and I can't even recall what it was. I think that's the difference. John's family is about the food and my family is about the music and alcohol. Her whole family, they made a plan. They were all going to meet at her aunt's house in Belgrade. And uh, I was nervous. I mean, you'd be nervous about meeting your girlfriend's parents anyway. So I was really nervous about meeting my girlfriend's parents in a very foreign culture, in a, coming from a war zone. I really didn't know what to expect. So we turned up in this little place called Resnik, and we go into this sort of socialist housing apartment building and the whole family is there it's just unbelievable the greeting that we just got i mean it was wow johnny 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 they are incapable of calling me jonathan the music went on really loud and everybody started dancing and it was drinks all around and it was and i have to explain to you i've just come from holland where people don't do this <laughs> they don't do this it's, hi, nice to meet you, and they'll shake your hand, and if you're lucky, you'll get some coffee and a couple of cookies. I got this was, no, it was, Johnny, 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 wow, well, fabulous to meet you, this is great. Please, sit down, we've prepared this chair just for you. Here, just go go down and sit, and drag it, trying to translate it, and they're crying because they haven't seen their daughter in, what, four years or something like that, so they're crying their eyes out. This is a moment of catharsis that had been building up for four years. They are crying, crying, crying. Everybody is getting drunk. Drinking, drinking, drinking. It's incredible. Then, finally, Dragona tells them, because I, I should point out to you, they're musicians. The father is a musician. He made a living playing Serbian folk music. And with his brother, the son went to a conservatory, knows the entire repertoire, Yugoslav repertoire, can play everything, uh, as well as pop music. So they're musicians. So Dragona says to them, you know, Jonathan can sing. So they all gathered around one side of the table. <laughs> <laughs> and there I was sitting alone on the other side of the table and they're all staring at me going, sing, 
So what did I sing? I sang the first thing that came to my mind. So dear friends, your love has won. Only tears to dwell upon. I dare not say as the wind must blow. So a love is lost. A love is won. And they're melting. And they just died. And went, ah, a big collective family sigh. It was the warmth that I felt at that moment was staggering. I don't have superlatives enough to explain how shockingly warm it all was. I was smothered in warmth and kindness. So then out goes the plum wine again, and we're all drinking our brains out, and we're getting really drunk at this point, and the music is playing loud, and people are standing on their chairs, really standing on their chairs with their arms flown up, with this Yugoslav music playing, with their arms up in the air. The joy was overwhelming. Then the aunt comes home from work. The door bursts open. She sees what's going on, walks over to her table, picks up her own plates, and throws them against the wall and smashes them. Goes, And starts dancing on a table herself. It's not to be believed. I could not freaking believe it. It was fabulous. I had a vague idea about America, I guess the country of Hollywood and uh, science and riches. The first time I went to Banja Luka, I was very apprehensive. But it was really actually so far away that I never, never even had a dream of going there. I never even pictured myself that I'll go one day to New York or something. The only way there is you have to drive from Zagreb all the way through to the border, which goes over a river. Buildings riddled with pockmarks of machine gun fire on both sides of the little river. And you step straight into the Orthodox world. My first time in New York was during the Christmas, nine years ago. I saw the pictures and the movies and everything, and I always had an impression, okay, this is the New York skyline and I will like it. But when I went there first time and we were in the underground and then we uh, went uh, on, I think, 42nd Street or something, up the stairs and, and I looked around me, I almost fainted. And when you get into Banja Luka itself, it's actually quite nice houses. And this is the thing about Bosnia. Bosnia is very nice. I mean... I hyperventilated because I thought it was big, but when I saw it with my own eyes, it was huge. It was immensely beautiful and it was immensely big. So grandiose and wonderful. If and people didn't really have what you would call dangerous ideas about each other historically... It's a beautiful place to live. I was, I was overwhelmed with beauty. N- Manhattan is just the most beautiful part of the world I have ever seen. They do have this Slavic perma-frown, as I like to call it, you know, this permanent frown that you see on Slavic faces. Everything in America is bigger, and people are spending more, wasting more. At, uh, it's a very much consumption-oriented society where, you know, everything that you want, even the things that you don't know that you want, you, they make you want them or something. It's a very consumption-oriented society. But once you get inside their homes, ah, oh, they're so warm, I mean, in a way that we in the West no longer have. I'm a person that grew up in a country that was somewhere in between two worlds. I mean, we were not really Eastern Bloc, but even not Western. We were, like, in between. And for me, like... Having so much choice in the supermarket was mind-boggling. Why should I need to choose between 358 sorts of toothpaste? 
I had such great difficulties in just finding my way around in these big drugstores, supermarkets, so whatever, because it was just too much. I think I could probably live in Bosnia for a little while. And I think I would do it while Lucas is small. I think it's a great place to live if you're a small kid because everybody has big houses and they have big backyards and it's better than Holland in that way. You know, there's lots of space and God, are they so nice to small children. It's a great place to be a small kid. I think that living in America could be an option but only for a limited amount of time. I can see myself living in New York, in Manhattan. I would enjoy it immensely. But But I would not like my son to become a man there. Living there forever, uh, it's really too far away from home. I mean, you're still uh, across the water. It's a mental barrier that I have. I feel that I'm much closer to home from the Netherlands. I don't want him taking on core Yugoslav, maybe Balkan ideas, because I was raised in the U.S. and I live in, in Western Europe, and... You know, I believe in a secular humanist idea of the world, and that is not what's happening down there. It's a damaged society, and I, you know, I wouldn't want my son to grow up with that. Is, does it bother me that Lucas is going to grow up in the Dutch culture? And what do I think about it? Yeah, I gave some thought about it. It is, I mean, first of all, he's an extraordinary kid. I mean, he is very interesting just by uh, default, having... Bosnian mother and uh, American father or Banyaluka mother and Brooklyn father and living in Amsterdam in Holland makes him, you know, per default very special. And he's uh, uh, being brought up in three languages and he's doing it so well that I'm so proud of him. I mean, he's now two and a half years old and he already has a very warm and established connection with Bosnia and with uh, America, with New York and Banyaluka through grandparents, through the cousin that he has already, that I think that he will carry and merge those three worlds easily. And he, I always say the kids like Lucas are the ho- hope of this world. I mean, he's going to, in, in one person, merge three different cultures. He's going to be a true international, fluent in three languages and have a great understanding of three different cultures, merge them and make his own world out of it him looking more like Bosnian or American or Dutch, behaving more like Bosnian, American, Dutch, doesn't bother me at all. The essence is going to be good. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I've got to eat some worms. eat some worms. Fat one, skinny one, even in the bitty one, look how the little worm squirm. First you bite the head off, then you suck the blood off, then you throw the rest away. I like to eat worms, worms three, three times, times a day. day. Oi way! <laughs> <laughs> that was the first English song I ever learned from the beginning until the end. And Jonathan taught me that. I have no idea why I taught her that song. No idea. Dragon and I are far more similar than we are dissimilar. We're both really, really big personalities. We both like to be the center of attention. 
We both come from a background which is very loud and lively and warm, musical, kind of obnoxious people. <laughs> and it is both our curse and our blessing that we're living here in Holland. I have never felt comfortable in Holland, never. I took a Dutch passport primarily because it was a means to an end. I could live in Holland and stay here without having to deal with all the stuff that a foreigner has to deal with, the paperwork. But it also meant to me at the time that I could leave and go to a, a country that was more similar to my character. That is no longer possible, really, because my wife loves it here. She loves Holland. I came here in the most difficult and challenging time in my life, and I think this country, and especially my Dutch friends, helped me so much in the beginning that I really feel very attached to Amsterdam and to living here, and I got used to it as well. I mean, 12 years is like one-third of my life I spent here. She thinks the Dutch are great. And I don't think the Dutch are bad. I think the Dutch are good, but I don't think they're great. And when I say that, I'm not referring to them as individuals because, I mean, there's good people and bad people wherever you go. And there are so many things that I appreciate about this country as well. I'm just referring to the national character. I find the Dutch closed. I find them a bit cold, very judgmental. They are quite emotionally detached from each other. And I don't really like the food. I don't like the weather. People are not great talkers. And I'm somebody who was raised on literature and theater, and I'm very word-oriented. And the, the Dutch, culturally or not, they're a visual people. They make great paintings, they make great buildings, those kinds of things. Dragana doesn't seem to mind any of this. My family uh, is very important to me, and I'm very important to them, and I can still claim anything when it comes to my parents, my brother, my sister, or my cousins even. And here it's not that much involved in each other's lives. I mean, in our case, it's maybe too much, but because I live uh, 1,500 kilometers away from them, I can profit from both worlds. I mean, I have a closeness with my family, and I have privacy that Holland offers to you because people call for us, they make appointments, they ask you, may I come around, uh, do you have time for me? In Boston, it's completely different. They just show up and claim you. And I, I can say I, I like the combination of two things. She's very comfortable here. And a lot of really what I think is most attractive for Dragana, I think it's the fact that it's safe and stable. She uprooted herself once in violent circumstances. She's worked very hard. She got her degree here. Holland afforded her a home when she needed it, and she's dead grateful. And she's loyal to it as a result of that. And who can blame her, really? We were living as Yugoslavs. Nobody was really differentiating himself, being a Serb, Croat, a Muslim. Everybody knows this now. But when the war started, suddenly it became very important who and what you are, and I really refused to comply to that. And I promised myself that I will leave Banja Luka in 1992. And I felt, as the oldest child, I felt very responsible for the future of my brother that was three years younger, and my sister was 12 at that time. And my parents were there completely hopeless and scared and afraid. You know, your father can be your hero, and he was always my big dad. But I think at that time he was very frightened and lost. And I was completely going insane. I could not believe it was happening to us. I came, I think, on the Christmas Eve. I see myself as a present to the Dutch for Christmas. I first had to go through the Dutch course, and then uh, from, I think, end 93 until I got my master's in engineering in September 97, in Dutch and English. 
because it, you had to write your master thesis in English, but you had to follow all of the classes in Dutch. And I remember first few weeks uh, um, following the classes wasn't that easy because I had to copy everything from the board because I could not understand one single word. I state my complaints about Holland. I'm more or less shut up about it because I know I'm going to be here for a long time. And let's face it, Holland hasn't been bad to me. I have a really good and interesting job. I have a nice house. I've made, met my wife here, created a beautiful child here. And it is safe and stable. And in many ways, it's very international. So the things that the country doesn't hand to me as part of its own culture, I can find if I just go looking for it. So is Holland an awful place? No, by no means. Is it the place where I want to end up when I grow up? <laughs> no way. Can I grow old here? Uh-uh. I cannot grow old in this country. But you might. But I might. I, I have to make... I, have to, I might. I have to make my peace with that. Mama je super, mama je najbolja, mama je najljepša i najdraža. It's very simple lyrics. Mami is the best, mami is the greatest, mami is the most beautiful. He's completely brainwashed. My language is quite difficult, so you have so many cases and so many uh, different ways to um, express yourself. I mean, like any other, other language, but you, because of the cases, like even your name changes depending on the place in the sentence. So it's not uh, Dragana, it's Dragani, Draganu, depending you know what you want to say. So I think Lucas uh, can say in perfect uh, Serbo Croatian a few sentences, and they're all about you know how wonderful his mom is. My mom said that I traveled really far to go and find a woman just like my mom. And that is true. <laughs> I can't deny it. And this is true of all the men in my family. All the Grubers from the history of time have gone and found themselves very strong, very powerful, dominating, big-chested women. And this is one of our biggest problems because, you know, my dad was always seriously dominated by my mother, and I always sort of blamed him for that. And now I see it happening to me. And we're constantly fighting as a result of it because I have this pathology. Once I see myself acting like my dad, I then overreact. And it leads to so many fights. And it's really awful. It's probably the worst part of our relationship is our fighting. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, and there were like things about him being American, you know, uh, American loudness. And uh, maybe it's a New Yorker thing, actually. Do you know that everything has to be funny and... Uh, 10,000 jokes in one hour. I like that, but not that much. And that can be also conflicting between us. There are things about him being American that are annoying me. I'm a Slav, let's face it. We can be very melancholic, dramatic, and, uh, you know, it's the dark side of life, you know, that he doesn't get it. I'm really not all that different from her dad, whose name, by the way, is, is the astoundingly and nearly unpronounceable Radivoye. Anyway, he's a big personality, and he's very musical, and we act alike in many ways. You know, we could be big babies, and uh, we're a bit sloppy. Well, Dragana, on the other hand, is a bit prissy. She's all fussy, and people have to have proper behavior, and whereas I'm sloppy, and I'm a messy eater, and 
and I'm loud and I fart and I belch and she hates that. She just hates it with like an unnatural passion. And I can't do anything about it. It's not just behavior. To a certain extent, it's biology. <laughs> and there's not much I can do about what my body does, you know? We've been married for 10 years. And if I belch in front of her, it's like the first time I ever did it in front of her. Like for 10 years, I've not been belching in front of her, <laughs> you know? He's too human for me. And also, I think it's a very cultural thing. In America, it seemed to be acceptable that you do that. I mean, that you belch in front of your wife. Or fart. I can't even say it. It upsets me by saying it. <laughs> it's unacceptable. You can't do that. You can't control your body. I'm telling him over and over again, and he doesn't believe me. For instance, I said, you know, if you have to, like, you know, fart, you have to leave the room. And then he goes and stands on the door and looks at me and farts. And then I say, you can't do that. You have to leave the house, go on the balcony, go downstairs, go on the street, go 500 miles away from me. I can't look at you. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> we love each other anyway. We really love each other intensely and we really can't stand each other intensely. It's, I have to be honest about it. Our relationship is always on the edge of bliss or hell every hour of every minute of every day. I never know where we're going to be in an hour. I think both of us really believe that we would like to grow old together and die together. I really love her. See, this is the problem. Dragana makes me nuts. And I, as often as not, I'd like to smack the crap out of her. <laughs> I don't, of course. That's no longer socially acceptable in this day and age. But she pisses me off a lot. And this is the killer part. I cannot imagine my life without her. It would be so empty and so boring. And I hope to God she says the same thing. Life with her is so much more fun. Hellish as it is. <laughs> I mean, when you're with somebody like that, you definitely feel alive. Last night we nearly killed each other. Last night I hated her guts. And then this morning she woke up and she said, Hello, baby. And she gave me the most warm kiss and it was all over. And I was in love with her again. Hooray. La-di-da. I mean, she loves me. Life is good. Till the next time. That I can't stand her. <laughs> oh, God bless her. Where do you think you will be in 30 years? Do you think you'll still be together? Oh, you can't ask me that question. I mean, I'm hoping for it. That's the only thing I can say. I mean, things can change in life. People can fall in love and out of each other. I know that I'm hoping for it. That's the most I could say. We can make each other laugh. In 30 years time, that would be also a nice connection we could have. I mean, he's definitely my love, but also my, my friend, my best friend, actually. And he makes me laugh. Those are, I think, important ingredients that uh, give hope for future. But I can't really definitely say we will be in 30 years together. You can't say we have a yes or no answer from me. No, maybe. Hopefully, yeah. From Brooklyn to Banja Luka was produced by Dira Sujan for Radio Netherlands.
Sujan was born in India, raised in Australia, and lives in the Netherlands. No surprise then that most of her work centers around the idea of identity. Since we're talking about romance today, can't you send a little sugar our way? We don't need flowers and candy. We'd settle for a paltry little email. An email! With whom else can you expend so little effort and yield such big response? We'll love you. We'll adore you. And all for a few clicks of the mouse. No strings attached. Our email address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Can't you send a little sugar our way? <laughs> Sugar? Dial it back just a little bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. You've often heard that old saying, things are not always what they seem. Well, let us be brutally frank with you tonight and say that it is our happy duty to demolish completely that ridiculous little phrase with this objective reappraisal. Things are always and only what they seem. It depends entirely on the point of view. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound. Suppose we pursue our investigations into phase two. If you're like me, and by God, for your sake, I hope you're not, then hearing about other people's romances, depending on how they're portrayed, inevitably leads to the very immature tendency to compare. Are they happier than me? Am I happier than them? What do they have that I want? If I got it, would I still want it? You know, you'd think, now that I'm like halfway to 90, that kind of pop psych idiocy would stop. But you know, when your brain stopped maturing at 17, these are the problems you face. In our next story, called Jack and Olive, the obstacles to love aren't gigantic. They're not continents and cultures. They're tiny. They're every day. They're relentless. They're the clothes on the floor, next to the hamper. Here's the tale of Jack and Olive, a selection from a larger work called Cohabitation, produced by Jill Dorothy Summers. Olive and Jack Orange lived on the first floor of the building, in an apartment that, having somehow escaped a century's worth of questionable trends in rehab, retained the stately air of the day its wealthy builder carried his wife over the threshold in 1897. Located at the end of a shady boulevard on the west side of town, it was running rather than walking distance to the train, but from one end of the block to the other it was safe enough, and the rent was cheap for the space. It had been her apartment first, and as such it had enjoyed her fastidious attention to detail— suffering neither male sensibilities nor couples' compromise. The sprawling vintage apartment was cluttered, peculiar, and exactly as she wanted it. In return for Jack's complete forsaking of any current or future opinion on the matter, Olive selflessly handled every chore associated with their living space, from manic dusting to the frenetic returning of displaced items to their rightful, if not obvious, stations on this unnecessary end table or that. When they decided to move in together, Olive had pictured Chinese takeout containers and chopsticks, crosswords in bed, and Jack's complete acceptance of the concept of decorative pillows. Certainly he would have no belongings of his own, but would arrive on the doorstep with nothing but an armful of freshly laundered white t-shirts and blue jeans. 
the haphazardly packed boxes of video games, dusty action figures, and battered vegan cookbooks were surprising and unwelcome baggage, and she had assimilated them by stashing them out of sight in closets and under the bed, leaving them there for an amount of time exactly equal to the time it took him to forget their existence, at which point she moved them to the dumpster. The random bits that escaped the genocide, she reluctantly admitted to a small assortment of unsanctioned items that now peppered the apartment and occasionally reminded her that she did not live there alone. Jack's 120-pound, one-eyed pit bull, Big B, was a more constant reminder. Being a dog is hard work. If it's not the eating kibble, it's the drinking water. And if it's not the sleeping on the couch for 12 hours, it's the defecating on the bathroom rug three times in a single week. There's a lot to think about and so many hours in a day. Being Big B, a dog the size of a generous love seat, was particularly taxing, especially when his recent past, hungry and forgotten on the streets, meant he had a lot of catching up to do. Bigby snored, took immense craps and not always outside, and slept squarely and painfully on top of Olive's legs all night, every night. He stank even after a bath. He ate shoes, underwear, and entire pans of lasagna, and Olive adored him. Jack had rescued him and fattened him up, but one look into his lone, big, round eye proved he was, without a doubt, a mama's boy. The oranges had started out like every other couple, with sweet nothings, butterflies, and meticulous hygiene, but now it was all nagging, grandma underwear, and unchecked breath. Their relationship was currently based largely upon chores and formalities, and Olive and Jack often went days without a single bit of actual content entering one of their conversations. Jack seemed not to notice. Olive found herself increasingly infuriated by Jack's refusal to relate every detail of his day and his blatant disregard for the proper placement of the apartment's seven ashtrays. The sight of one of his dirty teacups left thoughtlessly at the foot of a sitting room chair and his standard replies of uh-huh and whatever propelled increasingly farther away her dulcet memories of their courtroom wedding. So how was your day, she asked him, as she did each evening, her hair a dark mess of braids and curls twisted atop her head. Her skin flushed from the heat of the gas burners, and she used a wooden spoon to stir bits of crushed garlic into hot oil in a saucepan. Bigby lay heavy and asleep at her feet. Their kitchen was an ineffective Eden with imposing crown molding and uneven wood floors that left splinters in her bare feet. She had quit her waitress job, supposedly to sell handmade greeting cards, but had spent most of the months since napping with the dog and thrift shopping for and rearranging the apartment. Jack was in the sitting room trying to shake off a day of teaching eighth grade science. He considered himself a pedagogue, but a dislike of academics, including himself, kept him out of higher education. Ugh, he answered, lacking the drive to relate to her the day's events, which involved a junior mint superglued to his desk and the fact that 25 13-year-olds giddily waited for him to grab for it. They had not been disappointed. Olive and Jack had met four years ago on the train. She watched him staring at her pallid reflection in the dark window for five straight stops, but was still surprised when the ashen blonde Jack walked over and handed her a business card. It said Bartholomew Grevy DDM, 2248 Northwestern Avenue, on the face. But when she flipped it over, scrawled in blue crayon were the words, I'm not Bart, this card was under the seat in front of me. She called the number that followed that very night. You like the new curtain, she asked, adding a can of crushed tomatoes to the pan. Olive had found the perfect peacock print curtains that afternoon in someone else's cart at the village thrift. But thanks to the poor reflexes of the elderly, she was able to secure them for herself. She poured a colander of badly overcooked corkscrew into the sauce, scratched the dog's immense head with her big toe, and waited for a response. She brought Jack his dinner and sat cross-legged on the floor in front of his chair. Jack nodded unenthusiastically and accepted the plate. 
Hun, you mind moving out of the way? He asked, straining with his free hand to reach a remote control that Olive had stowed attractively in a card box on the wicker side table. Jeopardy is about to come on, he said, his mouth full of pasta, an entire corkscrew hanging off his lower lip and a smear of sauce across his front teeth. A little overcooked, huh? He said, adding, this is organic though, right? Olive had hated him for approximately three months. She could pinpoint her exact realization of the latent hostility to an afternoon sometime in late July when she prepared him a grilled vegetable sandwich and he picked everything but the tomatoes off it. The fact that he left the soggy vegetable-laden plate in the sink sealed the deal. Now, the bit of pasta she would have once kissed off his face rendered him revolting. What were once charming eccentricities were now glaring proof that he was, in fact, a grade-A jackass. His eating habits were annoying, and his bad breath permeated the entire apartment in the morning. She hated his fake chicken patties and his BBC News. His ass was getting fat like a woman's. Bigby, on the other hand, had grown on her over time, aging like a fine wine or a pungent cheese, until her dedication to him approached the dangerous realm where unfulfilled women knit their pet sweaters and invite them to tea. The next evening, Olive sauteed onions in a saucepan and called to Jack from the kitchen. So how was your day? Her t-shirt and jeans were faded and loose on her small frame, and her bare toes needed the small bird of paradise rug she'd found draped over their second floor neighbor's back railing that morning. Jack was in the sitting room, recovering from a Saturday spent at a second job as a mascot for a little league baseball team. Big B was out like a light and snoring loudly on top of Jack's bare feet, wearing one of Jack's sweaters. Uh-huh, Jack answered while looking through the contents of a battered wooden chest for a video game controller. In fact, a group of eight-year-olds repeatedly kicked him in the balls the entire time he was on the field. And when he yelled, don't you face little mother have anything better to do, through his huge plush costume head, he was sent home. But he did not feel like discussing it. Olive stirred the saute aggressively and used her free hand to open a cabinet above the stove. Putting her spoon to the side, she pulled the pop top off a can of generic, completely non-organic beef stock and added it to Jack's couscous. She smiled to herself when he noted it was too salty and pretended to be asleep later that evening when he desperately screamed to her from the bathroom that he had run out of toilet paper. Bigby had been thoroughly appreciative of the leftover saute. Conspiring against one's spouse takes thought. Olive decided the silent treatment might actually please him. Withholding sex would hardly be noticed and killing him outright would most likely really mess up the house and traumatize the dog. A systematic program of passive aggressive and petty misdeeds seemed like her best bet. She added liquid animal product to every possible foodstuff in the house and was in the process of putting dead batteries into all of his beloved electronics. She gingerly placed dried birds from the yard into the worn toes of his socks and cleaned the utility sink with his toothbrush. The trouble was that aside from the sudden onset of chronic diarrhea from the introduction of beef stock to his formerly organic vegetarian diet, he did not seem to notice his impending demise. The next evening, Olive dined alone with Big B on the floor in front of the television while Jack attended faculty detention for calling little Sammy Hertzberger an ungrateful monkey turd. It was a crisp October night, and thick brocade curtained the windows of the sitting room. Olive looked around and admired her apartment. She had furnished it thriftily, but it was indeed, she thought, aside from the healthy amount of dog deposited in the foyer a moment before dinner, magnificent. Alone with her dog, sharing the seasoned hamburger she had planned on adding to Jack's ground soy, she felt quite happy. It was during a rerun of her favorite episode of The Honeymooners, however, that she noticed one of her lampshades was missing its burgundy silk fringe. Oh, Big B, she thought at first, chuckling to herself at her adorable naughty dog and grabbing him for a scratch and a bear hug. 
over his mammoth head, however, she was horrified to see the missing fringe about five feet across the room, threaded halfway through an old calabash pipe that Jack had been threatening to start smoking in public. He had used it in lieu of a proper pipe cleaner, which she had incidentally purchased for him and placed quite conveniently on the shelf by his chair, and the sticky black tar that fused the delicate threads indicated it had been an effective substitute. Turning her furious attention back to the lamp, she furthermore noticed that the trimming had been removed callously. The fabric of the shade was ripped, leaving the edge in shambles. Jack, what the hell was wrong with him? She gripped Bigby's head a little too hard and he excused himself to the parlor. How could she be expected to live like this? It was worse than the time she had modeled sexy underwear for him and he tried to pop the zit on her ass. It was worse than the container of a single bite of hummus put back in the fridge. It was worse than his refusal to tell her what had gone on in his day. The torn strip of silk tassel stared sadly up at her. Look at what he's done to me. It is painfully obvious that he doesn't appreciate you at all. The fringe had an English accent and it was right. You should take a screwdriver and stab him in his big fat face. The decorative strip concluded. Olive rummaged through Jack's toolbox for the biggest flathead she could find and stationed herself on the battered settee in their front parlor. She sat Indian-style, with the screwdriver held tightly in both fists on her lap. Bigby beside her, panting dumbly and occasionally licking the screwdriver with his thick pink tongue. Olive sat that way for two hours, her resolve and the vein on her forehead increasing in size and intensity each minute. At quarter past seven, she heard Jack's key in the door and sat up straight with her right hand high in the air, holding the screwdriver like a torch and ready to strike. Olive, Jack said as he opened the door, surprised to see her in the front room waiting for him, but oblivious, as was his nature, that she wielded a weapon. Wait until you hear what I just had to sit through. He was laughing as he pulled a takeout bag from behind his back and held it up for her to see. Dinner, he said. I got Mushu, been craving meat the past few weeks. Olive hid the screwdriver behind her back where Big B seized it and trotted away. She took a good look at Jack's sweet chubby face and decided she'd let him live at least until after dinner. Jack and Olive, a selection from Cohabitation, produced by Jill Dorothy Summers and engineered by David Whitcomb. Cohabitation is a collection of five interconnected stories about the inhabitants, human and otherwise, of a greystone in Chicago. To hear another tale of the mythical greystone, the story of the cantankerous apricot Wensleydale, go to the Resound page on our website. The address is thirdcoastfestival.org. By the way, Jill Summers not only wrote the stories that make up Cohabitation, she composed all the music. She narrated her work and also played the violin, viola, xylophone, and percussion on the recording. Those kids will make out okay. Those kids are in love. Oh, I don't seem to recall them mentioning the fact. Fell in love with a girl. Fell in love once and almost completely. She's in love with the world. But sometimes these feelings can be so misleading She turns and says, are you alright? I said I must be fine cause my heart's still beating Come and kiss me by the riverside Yeah, Bobby says it's fine, he don't consider it cheating now Red hair with a curl Mellow roll for the flavor and the eyes were peeping Can't keep away from the gal These two sides of my brain need to have a meeting can't think of anything to do Yeah, my left brain knows that our love is fleeting 
for something new I said it once before but it bears repeating now You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. We have so far been quite unable to define love. Our examples have revealed a wide difference of opinion as to what constitutes even the most normal behavior patterns of boy and girl in love. I've always understood that love is the universal language, yet we seem to be getting to no agreement here. The obstacles to young love are endless. But by far the A number one, top of the heap, alpha dog impediment to such romance has got to be mom and dad. And when you're gay and your mom says to you at the age of 12, if you become a lesbian, I'll curse the day you were born, it's especially hard. Ala Pekareva tells her story. Mom, dad, I'm gay. Mom, dad... I'm a lesbian. I kept saying it over and over in my head. I had tried giving my parents hints by putting up a rainbow flag in my room and wearing rainbow bracelets. They never really made a move on it, until one night when my mom pointedly stared at my rainbow bracelet and asked, Tishtoris Bianca? Are you a lesbian? She said it with such a negative connotation that I was scared to admit it. I chickened out and said, Do I look gay? Then I practically ran to my room trying to avoid her. My heart was beating so fast. The next day, I was determined to come out. My dad was standing in the kitchen, and my mom was nearby, chopping vegetables. I'd finally gotten them in the same room, and this was the moment of truth. I just hoped that my mom would put her knife down so that she wouldn't accidentally cut herself, or attack me with it. I kept starting to say the phrase, but stopping just before the gay part came. Mom, Dad, I'm... Finally, I said it. There was a horrible moment of silence before my mom turned to me, threw up her hands theatrically, the knife still in one of them, and said, I knew it. My dad just stayed quiet. We were sitting in the same place. I was sitting right here. No, no. We were by the table. I was crying here. This is where I was. Well, remember, I was there. And then I sat down. I didn't have any strength left to stand. And then you said, I'm gay. Really, I could have told, judging by your colored sneakers and that you were always in the Castro, I could have guessed why you were going there. But still, I didn't know. I thought maybe I was wrong, you know? Because back then, that wasn't something to bring up. It was scary to say it out loud. The blackest days of my life. Some of the blackest days. I knew that my parents couldn't handle my coming out on their own. I wanted them to find other people who had gone through the same thing. I thought of PFLAG, a support group for parents, friends, and families of lesbians and gays. My parents loved the sound of that organization as soon as they heard it. They were excited to go and looked forward to it. When they came back home after the meeting, they were all smiles. My mom was carrying a box, and my dad was holding a big bottle of Martinelli's apple cider, my favorite. My mom went to the kitchen and put the box on the table. Inside was a beautiful chocolate cake. Ala, we're so glad that you came out as gay. We're throwing you a party tonight and all your friends can come. Okay, that's not exactly what happened. 
I had known that my coming out would not be good news for my parents, and they would never, ever throw me a party just because I was queer. They're immigrants from the Ukraine, and alternative sexualities just weren't acceptable there. Honestly, we didn't know what it was, what gay people were. We heard jokes, but you weren't supposed to talk about it. It wasn't allowed. It was shameful. And if there were gay people in Ukraine, they kept it secret. I couldn't believe that my parents didn't know about gay people. How do you not know? We live in San Francisco. Gay people are everywhere. At first, my parents did not want to go to PFLAG. My mom thought it was a stupid idea, that she had nothing in common with these people, as she put it, and my dad pretty much agreed. But somehow, I convinced them to go. I think it was my constant nagging, and the notes I had posted all over the kitchen, listing the location and time of the PFLAG meeting. We only went because of you. If it weren't for you, we never would have gone. What do you remember from your first meeting? Mom was crying, crying the whole time. The coach kept calming her, soothing her. You never told me that. Yeah, she was crying all the time. I couldn't even stop. Next to me sat a guy and he gave me tissues. I still have the tissues in my jacket. They're still there, like souvenirs. That's so cute. It's been almost two years since I came out to my parents. A lot of things have changed, including my parents' attitude about going to PFLAG. No, no, PFLAG is okay. It calms you, makes you feel better. It's a wonderful thing, a wonderful idea. It's a great organization. It's not okay, it's much more. And they still keep coming to the meetings, every second Sunday of the month, from 2 to 4 p.m. What's your favorite thing about going to PFLAG? PFLAG? I love listening to people telling their stories. I'm interested. How do people live? You learn about things that you would never hear in real life, and it widens your horizons. Of course, things are not perfect. My parents still have trouble dealing with my being queer sometimes. My mom especially, because she wishes I could just find a boyfriend and be happy with that. All mothers dream of seeing their daughters in a white wedding dress. Even in PFLAG, all the mothers, they worry that they'll never see their daughters dressed like that, standing next to a groom in a black suit. Oh, Mom, you'll see me in a wedding dress. Yeah, but next to you won't be the groom. Good luck. Good luck. They've come a long way, and they're still working on accepting some things. We understand. It exists. But it's hard for us. If you meet a girl and you love each other, we understand in our heads, but it's hard to accept it inside. But that's okay. That's how it should be. One evening, not too long ago, I invited my girlfriend Irina home. My parents were very happy to meet her. My mom made her prezhnitsy, a Ukrainian dish. I kept asking Irina if she wanted another pickle or tomato or something to drink. Afterwards, I told my mom how happy I was that she was so kind and welcoming to my girlfriend. My mom stared at me, confused, and finally said, Why wouldn't I be? You're our daughter, she's your girlfriend, and you're happy. Glasnost, 
by Ala Pekareva with Noah Miller. This piece was produced for Out Loud, a queer youth radio project in the Bay Area. Ala is currently attending Smith College and plans to do more work with Out Loud when she's back home for the summer. For a link to more stories from Out Loud, go to the Resound page at thirdcoastfestival.org. Well, it would seem then, gentlemen, if I may attempt a summary, that love, many splendid thing that it is, takes on different forms in different lands and climes. We've been unable, clearly, to find our universal language. To our Gallic cousins, it is not always coexistent with a nuptial state. To the English, it's one of the more placid emotions. While to the American, love is so easy to come by that well, it may have possibly lost much of its pristine value. Very well put, Doctor. <laughs> Very fair statement, I say, Doctor. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Do you want to come over and kill some time? Do you want to come over and kill some time? Throw your arms around.